Chapter Eighteen of the Secret Service by Albert Richardson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Casper. Chapter Eighteen. Now would I give a thousand furlongs of sea for an acre of barren ground. The wills above be done, but I would fain die a dry death. Tempest. If it should thunder as it did before, I know not where to lay my head. Ibid. On the 14th of March, the flotilla again started down the Mississippi, steaming slowly by Columbus, where Venus followed close upon Mars, in the form of two women dispersing pies and some other commodities to sailors and soldiers. The next day we anchored above island number 10, where Beauregard had built formidable fortifications. A fast little rebel gunboat, called the Grampus, ran screeching away from the range of our guns. Below her we could read with glasses the names painted upon the many steamers lying in front of the enemy's works, and see the guns upon a great floating battery. Our gunboats fired one or two experimental shots, and the mortar rafts, with tremendous explosions, began to throw their ten-inch shells weighing two hundred and fifty pounds each. Great results were expected from these enormous mortars, but they proved inaccurate. Our shots fell among the batteries and steamboats of the enemy, throwing up clouds of dirt and sheets of water. The rebel guns replied with great puffs of smoke, but their missiles, bounding along the river, fell three-quarters of a mile short. Light skirmishing in closer range continued for several days. My own quarters were on the Benton, Commodore Foote's flagship. She was the largest of the ironclads, one hundred and eighty-three feet by seventy, and contained quite a little community of two hundred and forty men. Standing upon the hurricane roof, directly over our bow guns, we caught the first glimpse of each shot, a few feet from the muzzle and watched it rushing through the air like a round black meteor, till it exploded two or three miles away. After we saw the warning puff of smoke, the time seemed very long before each rebel shot struck the water near us, but no more than ten or fifteen seconds ever elapsed. When ready to attack the batteries, Commodore Foote said to me, "'You had better take your place with the other correspondents, upon a transport in the rear.' out of range. Should any accident befall you here, censure would be cast upon me for permitting you to stay. Haunted by a resistless curiosity to learn exactly how one feels under fire, I persuaded him to let me remain. Two other ironclads, the St. Louis and the Cincinnati, were lashed upon either side of the Benton. Hammocks were taken down and piled in front of the boilers to protect them. The hose was attached to reservoirs of hot water, designed for boarders in close conflict. Surgeons scrutinized the edges of their instruments, while our triple floating battery moved slowly down, with the other ironclads a short distance in the rear. We opened fire, and the balls of the enemy soon replied, now and then striking our boats. A deafening noise from the St. Louis shook every plank beneath our feet, a moment after, a dozen men rushed upon her deck, their faces so blackened by powder that they would have been taken for negroes. 
two were carrying the lifeless form of a third several others were wounded through the din of the cannonade one of her crew shouted to us from a porthole that an old forty-two pounder had exploded killing and mutilating several men here comes another shot we obtained the best view from the hurricane deck of the benton where there could be no special danger from splinters while we stood there one of the party was constantly on the lookout and seeing a puff of smoke curl up from the rebel battery he would shout here comes another then we all dropped upon our faces behind the iron-plated pilot-house which rose from the deck like a great umbrella the screaming shot would sometimes strike our bows but usually pass over falling into the water behind us while the rebels fired from one battery there was just sufficient excitement to make it interesting but when they opened with two others stationed at completely different points in the bend of the river their range completely covered the pilot-house dropping behind that shelter to avoid the missiles in front we were exposed to a hail of shot from the side thereupon the commodore peremptorily ordered us below and we went down upon the gun-deck a correspondent of the chicago times who chanced to be on board took a position in the stern of the boat under the impression that it was entirely safe a moment after he came rushing in with a blanched face and dripping clothing a shot had struck within three feet of him glancing into the river and drenching everything in the vicinity that long gun deck was alive with action the executive officer lieutenant bishop a gallant young fellow fresh from the naval school superintended everything swarthy gunners manned the pieces little powder boys rushed to and fro with ammunition and hurrying men crowded the long compartment there came a tremendous crashing of glass iron and wood an eight-inch solid shot penetrating the half-inch iron plating and the five-inch timber near the bows as if they were paper buried itself in the deck and rebounded striking the roof in that manner it danced along the entire length of the boat through the cabin the wardroom the machinery the pantry where it smashed a great deal of crockery until at the extreme stern it fell and remained upon the commodore's writing desk crushing in the lid a moment before the noisy agile visitor arrived the whole deck seemed crowded with busy men a moment after i looked again a score of undismayed fellows were comfortably blowing splinters from their mouths and beards and brushing them from their hair and faces but by a fortunate accident not a single one of them was hurt as the shot screamed along very near me my curiosity diminished i had a dim perception that nothing in this gunboat life could become me like the leaving of it a mulatto cabin-boy whose face turned almost white when the missile tore through the boat shared my sensations i wish that i was out of it he said confidentially but i put my own neck into this yoke and i have got to wear it toward evening some of the enemy's batteries were silent and we idlers once more sought the hurricane deck dodging behind the pilot-house whenever the smoke puffed from the hostile guns once some one cried there she comes and we dropped as usual looking up i noticed a second engineer standing beside me 
"'Lie down, Blakely,' I said sharply. He replied laughingly, with his hands in his pockets, "'Oh, no, there is no need of it. One is just as safe here.' While he spoke, the rebel shot passed within fifteen inches of his bloodless face, shaved a sheet-iron ventilator, tore through the chimney, severed a large wrought-iron rod, struck the deck, ploughed through a half-inch iron plate, neatly cutting it in two, passed under the next plate, and then came out again with its force spent and rolled languidly against a skylight. When he felt the rush of air, Blakely bent back almost double, and thereafter he was among the first to seek the shelter of the pilot-house. From the mortars and the guns on both sides there were sometimes fifty shots to the minute. The jarrings and explosions induced headache for hours afterward. The results of the day's bombardment were not very sanguinary. Our ironclads were struck scores of times, but few men were injured. This desultory fighting was kept up for two or three weeks. Meanwhile, General Pope, moving across the country from Cairo with great enterprise and activity, had defeated the rebels and captured their forts at New Madrid, on the Missouri shore of the Mississippi, eight miles below island number ten. He thus held the river in the rear of the enemy, preventing steamboats from ascending to them, but he had not even a skiff or a raft in which he could cross to the Tennessee bank and reach the rear of the fortifications. How to supply him with boats was the great problem. Pope was anxious that the Commodore should send one of the ironclads to him, past the rebel fortifications. Foote hesitated, as running batteries was then an untried experiment. Pope had an active, hard-working Illinois engineer regiment, which began cutting a canal to open communication between the flotilla and New Madrid, and we waited for results. I found life on the Benton full of novelty. More than half of her crew were old salts, and the discipline was the same as on a man-of-war. Half-hour bells marked the passage of time. Every morning the deck was holy-stoned to its utmost possibilities of whiteness. Through each day we heard the shrill whistle of the bosun amid hoarse calls of, "'All hands to quarters! Stand by the hammocks!' etc. Even the negro servants caught the naval expressions. One of them, playing on the guitar and singing, broke down from too high a pitch. "'Too much elevation there,' said he. "'I must depress a little.' "'Yes,' replied another. "'Start again on the gun-deck.' Exchanging shots with the enemy grew monotonous. Reading, writing, or playing chess in the ward-room, we carelessly noted the reports from the rebel batteries, and some officer from the deck walked in, saying, "'There's another.' "'Where did it strike?' asked someone, quite carelessly. "'Near us, or just over us in the woods,' would be the reply, and the idlers returned to their employments. My own stateroom was within six feet of a thirty-two-pounder, which fired every fifteen minutes during the day. The explosions in no wise disturbed my afternoon naps. On Sunday mornings, after the weekly muster, the men in clean blue shirts and tidy clothing, and the officers in full uniform, with all their bravery of blue and gold, 
assembled on the gun-deck for religious service. Hat in hand, they stood in a half-circle around the Commodore, who, behind a high stool upon which the national flag was spread, read the comprehensive prayer for all who are afflicted in mind, body, or estate, or acknowledged that we have done the things which we ought not to have done, and left undone the things which we ought to have done. Among the groups of worshippers were seen the gaping mouths of the black guns, and the pyramidal piles of grape and canister ready for use. During prayer the boat was often shaken by the discharge of a mortar, which made the neighboring woods resound with its long rolling echoes. The Commodore extemporized a brief simple address on Christian life and duty. Then the men were piped down and dispersed. On a dark April night, during a terrific thunder-shower, the ironclad Carondelet started to run the gantlet. The undertaking was deemed hazardous in the extreme. The Commodore gave to her commander written instructions how to destroy her should she become disabled, and solemnly commended him to the mercy and protection of Almighty God. The Carondelet crept noiselessly down through the darkness. When the rebels discovered her, they opened with shot, shell, and bullets. All her ports were closed, and she did not fire a gun. It was too dark to guide her by the insufficient glimpses of the shore obtained from the little peepholes of her pilot-house. Mr. D. R. Hole, an old river pilot, volunteered to remain unprotected on the open upper deck, among the rattling shots and the singing bullets, to give information to his partners within. His daring was promptly rewarded by an appointment as lieutenant in the Navy. Upon the flagship above, intense anxiety prevailed. After an hour, which seemed a day, from far down the river, boomed two heavy reports. Then there was silence. Then two shots again. All gave a sigh of relief. This was the signal that the Carondelet had lived through the terrible ordeal. The rebels had made themselves very merry over Pope's Canal, but at daylight on the second morning after this feat of the ironclad, they saw four little stern-wheel steamboats lying in front of Pope's camps. The canal was a success. In two weeks the indefatigable engineers had brought these steamers from Foote's flotilla sixteen miles through cornfields, woods, and swamps, cutting channels from one bayou to another, and felling heavy timber all the way. They were compelled to saw off hundreds of huge trees three feet below the water's edge. It was one of the most creditable feats of the war. Let all the world take notice, said a Confederate newspaper, that the Southern troops are gentlemen, and must be subjected to no drudgery. The loyal troops, like these Illinois engineers, were men of skilled industry, proud to know themselves kings of two hands. The Confederates felt that Burnham Wood had come to Dunsinane, declaring that it was useless to fight men who would deliberately float gunboats by the very muzzles of their heavy guns, and could run steamers sixteen miles over dry land, they began to evacuate Island Number 10. But Pope had already ferried the greater part of his army across the river, and he replied to my inquiries, I will have every mother's son of them. 
he kept his promise. The rebels were caged. They fled in haste across the country to Tiptonville, where they supposed their steamboats awaited them. Instead, they found two of our ironclads lying in front of the town, and learned that Pope held the river even ten miles below. The trap was complete. On their front was Tiptonville, with the cavernous eyes of the Carondelet and the Pittsburgh ominously scrutinizing them. At their left was an impossible line of lake and slough. At their right a dry region, bounded by the river, and held by our troops. In their rear, Pope's army was hotly pursuing them. Some leaped into the lake, or plunged into the swamps, trying to escape. Three times the rebel forces drew up in line of battle, but they were too much demoralized to fight, and after a weary night they surrendered unconditionally. At sunrise, long files of stained, bedraggled soldiers, in butternut and jeans, began to move sadly into a great cornfield and stack their arms. The prisoners numbered twenty-eight hundred. We captured upward of a hundred heavy guns, twenty-five field-pieces, half a dozen steamboats, and immense supplies of provisions and ammunition. The victory was won with trifling loss of life, and reflected the highest credit both upon the land and water forces. The army and the navy, fitting together like the two blades of the scissors, had cut the Gordian knot. Pope telegraphed to Halleck that if steamboats could be furnished him, in four days he would plant the Stars and Stripes in Memphis. Halleck, as usual, engrossed in strategy, declined to supply the transportation. But the great northern flood rolled on toward the gulf, and in its resistless torrent was no refluent wave. End of chapter 18